Chapter One of Sir Dominic Ferrand. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicholas Clifford. Sir Dominic Ferrand by Henry James. Chapter One. There are several objections to it, but I'll take it if you'll alter it, Mr. Lockett's rather curt note had said and there was no waste of words in the postscript in which he had added, "'If you'll come in and see me, I'll show you what I mean.' This communication had reached Jersey Villas by the first post, and Peter Baron had scarcely swallowed his leathery muffin before he got into motion to obey the editorial behest. He knew that such precipitation looked eager, and he had no desire to look eager. It was not in his interest— but how could he maintain a godlike calm, principled though he was in favour of it, the first time one of his great magazines had accepted, even with a cruel reservation, a specimen of his ardent young genius? It was not till, like a child with a seashell at his ear, he began to be aware of the great roar of the underground, that in his third-class carriage the cruelty of the reservation penetrated with the taste of acrid smoke to his inner sense. It was really degrading to be eager in the face of having to alter. Peter Baron tried to figure to himself at that moment that he was not flying to betray the extremity of his need, but hurrying to fight for some of those passages of superior boldness which were exactly what the conductor of the promiscuous review would be sure to be down upon. He made believe as if to the greasy fellow-passenger opposite, that he felt indignant, but he saw that to the small round eye of this still more downtrodden brother he represented selfish success. He would have liked to linger in the conception that he had been approached by the promiscuous, but whatever might be thought in the office of that periodical of some of his flights of fancy, there was no want of vividness in his occasional suspicion that he passed there for a familiar bore. The only thing that was clearly flattering was the fact that the promiscuous rarely published fiction. He should therefore be associated with a deviation from a solemn habit, and that would more than make up for him for a phrase in one of Mr. Lockett's inexorable earlier notes, a phrase which still rankled about his showing no symptom of the faculty really creative. You don't seem to be able to keep a character together, this pitiless monitor had somewhere else remarked. Peter Baron, as he sat in his corner while the train stopped, considered in the befogged gaslight the bookstall's standard of literature, and asked himself whose character had fallen to pieces now. Tormenting, indeed, had always seemed to him such a fate as to have the creative head without the creative hand. It should be mentioned, however, that before he started on his mission to Mr. Lockett, his attention had been briefly engaged by an incident occurring at Jersey Villas. On leaving the house, he lived at number three, the door of which stood open to a small front garden, he encountered the lady who a week before had taken possession of the rooms on the ground floor, the parlours in Mrs. Bundy's terminology. He had heard her, and from his window two or three times, had even seen her pass in and out, and this observation had created in his mind a vague prejudice in her favour. 
Such a prejudice, it was true, had been subjected to a violent test. It had been fairly apparent that she had a light step, but it was still less to be overlooked that she had a cottage piano. She had furthermore a little boy, and a very sweet voice, of which Peter Baron had caught the accent, not from her singing, for she only played, but from her gay admonitions to her child, whom she occasionally allowed to amuse himself, under restrictions very publicly enforced, in the tiny black patch which, as a forecourt to each house, was held in the humble row to be a feature. Jersey villas stood in pairs, semi-detached, and Mrs. Rives, such was the name under which the new lodger presented herself, had been admitted to the house as confessedly musical. Mrs. Bundy, the earnest proprietress of number three, who considered her parlours—there were a dozen feet square—even more attractive, if possible, than the second floor with which Baron had had to content himself. Mrs. Bundy, who reserved the drawing-room for a casual dressmaking business, had threshed out the subject of the new lodger in advance with our young man, reminding him that her affection for his own person was a proof that, other things being equal, she positively preferred tenants who were clever. This was the case with Mrs. Rives. She had satisfied Mrs. Bundy that she was not a simple strummer. Mrs. Bundy admitted to Peter Baron that for herself she had a weakness for a pretty tune, and Peter could honestly reply that his ear was equally sensitive. Everything would depend on the touch of their inmate. Mrs. Rives's piano would blight his existence if her hand should prove heavy or her selections vulgar. But if she played agreeable things and played them in an agreeable way, she would render him rather a service while he smoked the pipe of form. Mrs. Bundy, who wanted to let her rooms, guaranteed on the part of the stranger a first-class talent, and Mrs. Rives, who evidently knew thoroughly what she was about, had not falsified this somewhat rash prediction. She never played in the morning, which was Baron's working time, and he found himself listening with pleasure at other hours to her discreet and melancholy strains. He really knew little about music, and the only criticism he would have made of Mrs. Rives's conception of it was that she seemed devoted to the dismal. It was not, however, that these strains were not pleasant to him. They floated up, on the contrary, as a sort of conscious response to some of his broodings and doubts. Harmony, therefore, would have reigned supreme, had it not been for the singularly bad taste of number four. Mrs. Rives's piano was on the free side of the house, and was regarded by Mrs. Bundy as open to no objection but that of their own gentleman, who was so reasonable. As much, however, could not be said of the gentleman of number four, who had not even Mr. Barron's excuse of being literary. He kept a bull terrier, and had five hats, the street could count them, and whom, if you had listened to Mrs. Bundy, you would have supposed to be divided from the obnoxious instrument by walls and corridors, obstacles and intervals of massive structure and fabulous extent. This gentleman had taken up an attitude which had now passed into the phase of correspondence and compromise, but it was the opinion of the immediate neighbourhood that he had not a leg to stand upon, 
and on whatever subject the sentiment of Jersey Villas might have been vague, it was not so on the rights and the wrongs of landladies. Mrs. Rives' little boy was in the garden, as Peter Barron issued from the house, and his mother appeared to have come out for a moment, bareheaded, to see that he was doing no harm. She was discussing with him the responsibility that he might incur by passing a piece of string round one of the iron palings and pretending that he was in command of a gigi, but it happened that at the sight of the other lodger the child was seized with a finer perception of the drivable. He rushed at Baron with a flourish of the bridle, shouting, "'Oh, gigi!' in a manner productive of some refined embarrassment to his mother. Baron met his advance by mounting him on his shoulder and feigning to prance an instant, so that by the time this performance was over—it took but a few seconds—the young man felt introduced to Mrs. Rives. Her smile struck him as charming, and such an impression shortens many steps. She said, "'Oh, thank you. You mustn't let him worry you.' And then as, having put the child down and raised his hat, he was turning away, she added, "'It's very good of you not to complain of my piano.' "'I particularly enjoy it. You play beautifully,' said Peter Barron. "'I have to play, you see. It's all I can do. But the people next door don't like it, though my room, you know, is not against their wall. Therefore I thank you for letting me tell them that you, in the house, don't find me a nuisance.' She looked gentle and bright as she spoke, and as the young man's eyes rested on her, the tolerance for which she expressed herself indebted seemed to him the least indulgence she might count upon. But he only laughed and said, "'Oh, no, you're not a nuisance,' and felt more and more introduced. The little boy, who was handsome, hereupon clamoured for another ride, and she took him up herself to moderate his transports. She stood a moment with the child in her arms, and he put his fingers exuberantly into her hair, so that while she smiled at Baron, she slowly, permittingly shook her head to get rid of them. "'If they really make a fuss, I'm afraid I shall have to go,' she went on. "'Oh, don't go!' Baron broke out, with a sudden expressiveness which made his voice, as it fell upon his ear, strike him as the voice of another. She gave a vague exclamation, and nodding slightly, but not unsociably, passed back into the house. She had made an impression which remained, till the other party to the conversation reached the railway station, when it was superseded by the thought of his prospective discussion with Mr. Lockett. This was a proof of the intensity of that interest. The aftertaste of the later conference was also intense for Peter Barron, who quitted his editor with his manuscript under his arm. He had had the question out with Mr. Lockett, and he was in a flutter which ought to have been a sense of triumph, and which indeed at first he succeeded in regarding in this light. Mr. Lockett had had to admit that there was an idea in his story, and that was a tribute which Barron was in a position to make the most of. But there was also a scene which scandalized the editorial conscience, and which the young man had promised to rewrite. The idea that Mr. Lockett had been so good as to disengage depended for clearness mainly on this scene, so it was easy to see his objection was perverse. 
the inference was probably a part of the joy in which peter baron walked as he carried home a contribution it pleased him to classify as accepted he walked to work off his excitement and to think in what manner he should reconstruct he went some distance without settling that point and then as it began to worry him he looked vaguely into shop windows for solutions and hints mr locket lived in the depths of chelsea in a little panelled amiable house and baron took his way homeward along the king's road there was a new amusement for him a fresher bustle in a london walk in the morning these were the hours that he habitually spent at his table in the awkward attitude engendered by the poor piece of furniture one of the rickety features of mrs bundy's second floor which had to serve as his altar of literary sacrifice if by exception he went out when the day was young he noticed that life seemed younger with it there were livelier industries to profit by and shop-girls often rosy to look at a different air was in the streets and a chaff of traffic for the observer of manners to catch above all it was the time when poor baron made his purchases which were wholly of the wandering mind his extravagances for some mysterious reason were all matutinal, and he had a foreknowledge that if ever he should ruin himself it would be well before noon. He felt lavish this morning on the strength of what the promiscuous would do for him. He had lost sight for the moment of what he should have to do for the promiscuous. Before the old bookshops and print-shops, the crowded panes of the curiosity-mongers, and the desirable exhibitions of mahogany done up, he used, by an innocent process, to commit luxurious follies. He refurnished Mrs. Bundy with a freedom that cost her nothing, and lost himself in pictures of a transfigured second floor. On this particular occasion the King's Road proved almost unprecedentedly expensive, and indeed this occasion differed from most others in containing the germ of real danger. For once, in a way, he had a bad conscience. He felt himself tempted to pick his own pocket. He never saw a commodious writing-table with elbow-room and drawers, and a fair expanse of leather stamped neatly at the edge with gilt, without being freshly reminded of Mrs. Bundy's dilapidations. There were several such tables in the King's Road. They seemed, indeed, particularly numerous to-day. Peter Baron glanced at them all through the fronts of shops, but there was one that detained him in supreme contemplation. There was a fine assurance about it which seemed a guarantee of masterpieces, but when at last he went in, and, just to help himself on his way, asked the impossible price, the sum mentioned by the voluble vendor mocked at him even more than he had feared. It was far too expensive, as he hinted and he was on the point of completing his comedy by a pensive retreat, when the shopman bespoke his attention for another article of the same general character, which he described as remarkably cheap for what it was. It was an old piece from a sale in the country, and it had been in stock some time, but it had got pushed out of sight in one of the upper rooms. They contained such a wilderness of treasures, and happened to have but just come to light. Peter suffered himself to be conducted into an interminable dusky rear, 
where he presently found himself bending over one of those square, substantial desks of old mahogany, raised, with the aid of front legs, on a sort of retreating pedestal which is fitted with small drawers, contracted conveniences known immemorially to the knowing as Davenports. This specimen had visibly seen service, but it had an old-time solidity, and to Peter Baron it unexpectedly appealed. He would have said in advance that such an article was exactly what he didn't want, but as the shopman pushed up a chair for him, and he sat down with his elbows on the gentle slope of the large, firm lid, he felt that such a basis for literature would be half the battle. He raised the lid and looked lovingly into the deep interior. He sat ominously silent while his companion dropped the striking words, "'Now that's an article I personally covet.' Then, when the man mentioned the ridiculous price, they were literally giving it away, he reflected on the economy of having a literary altar on which one could really kindle a fire. A Davenport was a compromise, but what was all life but a compromise? He could beat down the dealer, and at Mrs. Bundy's he had to write on an insincere card-table. After he had sat for a minute with his nose in the friendly desk, he had a queer impression that it might tell him a secret or two, one of the secrets of form, one of the sacrificial mysteries, though no doubt its career had been literary only in the sense of its helping some old lady to write invitations to dull dinners. There was a strange faint odour in the receptacle, as if fragrant, hallowed things had once been put away there. When he took his head out of it, he said to the shopman, "'I don't mind meeting you halfway.' He had been told by knowing people that that was the right thing. He felt rather vulgar, but the Davenport arrived that evening at Jersey Villas. End of chapter 1